You are listening to Take Back the Fight, a podcast that explores modern feminism in Canada and the digital age. I'm your host, Nora Loretto, and this podcast is based on a book that I wrote with the same name. This podcast is brought to you by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Chapter 9, Leadership. Leadership is such an interesting topic. It's one of those things that is the most visible, the most obvious that when we're talking about social movements or activism, we we tend to fall into a trap of talking about leadership in some way. It's often not directly about leadership, but indirectly, like what constitutes leadership or what gives someone the right to be a leader over someone else or who's taking up place or who's taking up direction and, and, and calling the shots. I find it so fascinating because in the way that the neoliberal era has transformed what a leader is and because ad hoc feminism in the digital era has meant that anybody that declares themselves to be a leader or to be the organizer of something might de facto become the leader, whether they like it or not. Leadership has become this very heavy thing that I think There's this perception that everyone wants to be the leader and yet no one wants to be the leader, but it's projected onto individuals, sometimes from the outside, like from journalists or from politicians who will decide who is a leader and who isn't a leader. And then all of a sudden it becomes personal. And so when we have conversations about what leadership is, it's hard to untangle those conversations from the the literal person who might be in the position that you're talking about. I think leadership is a fascinating topic because I am far less interested in the question of who should be the leader or who is the leader and far more interested in the questions about what leadership does to an individual and what leadership does to a collection of people. How do people decide who becomes a leader? And then once you've decided that, how do you decide what the leader should do or what they should say or how you recall them if you want to change the leader? What if you want to have multiple leaders and and is that okay? Or are you going to find yourself having to argue with journalists that, yeah, it's fine that we have three leaders. This is not weird. Leadership within the feminist movement especially has always been politically charged. Over the decades of feminist leadership, there have been high-profile feminists who've put forward a vision of feminism that has brought many people into the fold. There has been people who have been targeted by MPs for being too radical. And there are individuals who, thanks to their grassroots work, were able to bring a grassroots approach to their leadership when they did find themselves at the head of national or or provincial organizations. This episode is going to talk about leadership what it gives to the individual when they have the opportunity to try leadership out, what it does to movements when they have certain types of leaders who are who have that experience from grassroots activism and who are able to bring a grassroots vision to the head of, of a national or a provincial organization or collective or whatever. And I'm going to talk about how important leadership really is in the digital age where feminist leaders are so often 
subject to incredible abuse? And how do we on the left need to protect people who are holding some sort of position of leadership, whether formal or informal? How do we protect them from the hatred that is more and more common for anybody who's sticking their neck out and saying something on behalf of other people? I'm also going to talk about the far right and how good they are at creating leaders from people coming from nowhere, uh, from young activists, from people who show promise at an early age, and how they use their own networks to allow those individuals to practice leadership and then go on into other political roles, whether that be city council or within industry or becoming an elected politician at the provincial or federal level, and how on the left, we really don't have anything like that. I think that one of the most powerful ways that someone develops the skills to be a leader is through activism that started at the grassroots. Activism that may have been sparked by an interest in something or having a long history organizing on a particular issue or or perhaps many issues. And through the work that comes with activism at that level, you start to learn certain things about cooperation and communication and bringing people together and how your organization functions or what kind of personality mix you might have, you also learn a lot about your issue. And so you become an effective communicator. You become a practiced communicator, someone who can convince people who are already convinced but need to be pushed further on a certain issue or maybe convince someone who completely opposes the issue and to change their mind. In Take Back the Fight, I write, leadership plays several roles and is played in different roles. Leaders might coordinate, they might be media spokespeople, they might hold elected office, or maybe they've been in the movement for a very long time and their experience has vaulted them to a special status of honor. Local activists who play leadership roles need to connect with members of their communities. They might be local experts on a topic or have the time to call local meetings and gatherings where otherwise no one else would. They likely monitor local meeting agendas and organize around anti-feminist decisions made by town or city councils. They also might be able to persuade other people in their communities who are outside the feminist movement. National leadership might be responsible to coordinate with regions or particular campaign. They might be the ones who have relationships with political staff to be able to anticipate what's happening within the government and when. The way that I think of leadership isn't just the person who holds that leadership position. It isn't just the spokesperson. There's a lot of different kind of leadership that exists within any social movement. There is the leadership of bureaucracy, the person who's on top of the minutes and on top of the decisions and on top of what has happened and making sure that action items are actually acted upon. And that's a very specific set of skills. Then there's the leadership that might be the spokesperson. And this is the, the, the leadership that might be popularly associated with being the quote unquote head of some kind of organization. That person has to be available all the time to take media calls. They have to be an effective communicator. They have to be able to know the context inside and out, regardless of where the issue might be happening. And they have to be clever enough to not find themselves saying something that 
the membership doesn't support. That's really, really important. And so that's a different kind of leader. Then there's leaders who have some sort of esteem within their community. And sometimes that might come with age, but sometimes it might not either. So someone who is a leader because they have connections to uh, a, an organization or a community in solidarity, and they can be that that connection for that community into the movement, that's a really important kind of leadership. And that requires relationship management and understanding the, the kinds of ways that other organizations or other collectives or other groups of people people talk about issues and being able to become an interlocutor within other organizations or groups or movements allows for networking and solidarity to grow from movement to movement. And so that's a really important kind of leadership as well. And then there might be formal positions like president or treasurer or vice president. And the tasks that come with all these kinds of leadership They're all things that someone might arrive with already or that they'll learn on the job or both, but to have the the perfect mix of people involved in your organizations or campaigns or collectives or whatever, it requires very intentional leadership building. And so that means education and training, but also practicing our activism, being out in the streets and organizing protests and meeting with politicians and perfecting the way that people talk about things. That doesn't come out of nowhere. That requires access to resources. It requires access to trainers, which is another kind of leadership. And it also requires that people are supported to be able to participate. Because if you've got kids or if you're taking care of friends and you can't go to all of these sessions to hone your leadership skills, then you're not going to be able to probably have the skills necessary to be a leader, which then creates exclusive leadership. And then you have a different problem on your hands where your leadership is not representative of the people that it purports to represent. We need to get out of the mindset that there's only one leader in any left-wing grouping that we can imagine. There's never just one leader. And, And oftentimes, it's the people who are driving things quietly behind the scenes that are in the most important positions of leadership because they're the ones keeping everything together. In Take Back the Fight, I talk about Rosemary Brown, who is one of the most important feminist leaders in Canada's history. She was a professor at Simon Fraser University. When the final report of the Royal Commission on the Status of Women was released, a meeting was called to organize status of women committees at uh, her university. And so she showed up um, representing two organizations that she was involved with, the BC Council of Black Women and the National Black Coalition. There were about 200 participants at this meeting in February 1971. And by the end of it, Rosemary Brown was asked to help create a group that would become the Vancouver Status of Women Council. Within six months, Rosemary became the first ombudswoman tasked with collecting stories from women and finding ways that their problems could be addressed as they related to the Status of Women report. And so, of course, that report touched everything from violence to uh, the criminal code to immigration to the workplace to education and so on. Rosemary heard directly from women all across the province and the experience of hearing these stories from, from people calling her gave her insight into what was really the core issues, the key issues that were harming the province's women. 
A year later, there was a provincial election, and she was one of two people who were asked to run under the NDP banner. She would go on to serve as a member of Legislative Assembly for 14 years. And one of her biggest accomplishments was laying the groundwork of a provincial childcare system. Thanks to her, from 1971, where the province had about 2,500 childcare spaces, those spaces increased to more than 18,600 in 1975. Her government was also the first one to finance rape crisis centers and women's health collectives. Rosemary Brown would go on to run for the leadership of the federal NDP, and she didn't win. She lost to Ed Broadbent. If you are interested in, if you don't know anything about Rosemary Brown, I mean, you have to stop this podcast right now and just start looking her up. But if you do know anything about her and you've never seen, I mean, you don't have to know anything about her. You can start here if you want. If you've never seen her speech for leadership of the NDP, you must Google it. It's available at CBC Archives, and it is a rousing and radical call to action from the grassroots of the NDP. It's actually kind of amazing to listen to her speech for two, well, two ways that struck me in particular. One was how she lost and what the membership was voting against when they were voting against her or for Ed Broadbent. Here you have a black woman who's very, very smart, who's radical, who's got under her belt tons of experience and 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 has demonstrated that she's an effective politician through the programs that she was able to help usher in in, in British Columbia, and she loses to Ed Broadbent. The second thing that is so striking to me is how her speech, if given today, would be considered like too radical for the NDP. Maybe for folks who are interested in the NDP and figuring out why can it never be so left wing, Rosemary Brown is a good place to look because it does demonstrate that these issues are systemic within the party and go way back. But Rosemary Brown demonstrates that when you have leadership that comes through years and years of activism and organizing in other movements, that when you do arrive in a political situation like with the NDP or, you know, city council or whatever, you have the skills to not just communicate effectively, but you also have seen people's struggles. And so you are far less willing to compromise on things that will sell people out because you've seen the impact that things like capitalism and colonialism and racism have had on individuals, on communities, on families, and so on. Rosemary Brown also shows us the importance that the feminist movement plays in giving people leadership skills to then go on into public office. If you look at how many feminists start through activist organizing, whether that's through feminist organizing or through their workplace, like their unions or have found something in their community, it's very common for left wing politicians to come from those movements. It's far less likely that they're going to be the head of the Chamber of Commerce, for example, unless we're talking about the Ontario NDP. <laughs> And so when you have the experiences of, of, of learning to be a leader through social movement organizing, and then you bring that into a mainstream arena like the NDP at the House of Commons or 
a progressive political party like Quebec Solidaire, which I talk a lot about in the book as well, then you are bringing that outside perspective, but with already trained leadership skills ready for dealing with journalists and dealing with opposition parties and dealing with difficult public policy questions. When parties say, oh, we just need more money to find women and racialized people to run for these positions, they're not being honest because it isn't just through more money. I mean, of course, you need money to support people. That's that's obvious. But but social movements, like the way it's supposed to work is through social movement organizing, individuals get the skills that they need to then go on and do things perhaps outside of the social movement itself. If you look at the conservatives and you look at the liberals, that is exactly what they do. They just don't take their people from social movements unless they take people who are extremely confused, like perhaps our current minister of the environment. So they find people who have the similar kinds of training, whether that's through the business world or through the academy. A lot of professors will, you know, find themselves in the the, the um, liberal party, for example, or small business owners, people that have that experience in, in organizing and managing and running something like a seven Tim Hortons's or something. And who also understand how to connect with people because they've been doing that kind of work uh, in the private sector, in the business world or whatever. On the left, we don't really think about it like that. We don't see the necessity to train people to be leaders to then go on and make influence in other parts of society. And it's so important that we see it like that. Or if we see it like that, and then look around to see what the opportunities are, they're pretty thin. It, it's not the same world that it was 20 years ago or 50 years ago. The left just doesn't have the kinds of capabilities and organizing capacities to build leadership in the same way that the right does. And that's key. We're going to have to build that if we want to create a, a, a left wing that is able to confront power and is able to put people with leadership skills into important positions. This has to be part of what we're building when we're building a powerful movement. Because if we don't, we forget that there is a very fundamental role that social movements play in creating and generating leaders to then easily walk into these positions and have the experience, the charisma, the trained understanding of how to communicate to then capture people's imagination. You know, one of the most popular and effective social movement leaders in the last decade and a half in Quebec is Gabrielle Nadeau-Dubois, who is now the co-spokesperson at Quebec Solidaire. And his command of communications, which made him such a powerful leader during the Quebec student strikes in 2012, have continued to make him a very effective leader in the political arena. And so when I see a lot of people saying, well, we just need the right person to lead the NDP, we just need the right person. We just need the right person who's authentic and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it isn't just about the right person. It's about having the right mix of someone that has that grassroots experience that has had the opportunity to become a trained leader of, of some sort and then go into these positions and then not only be an effective communicator, but then also know how to operate within a bureaucracy and operate when you have fundraising concerns or fundraising demands or know how to negotiate and when absolutely not to negotiate with something like the Conservative Party. 
The conservatives probably have learned to do this the best. And there are obviously high-profile conservatives who we can name who have experience from the business world. But the conservatives who I think are the most dangerous are those who occupy their positions for decades and who don't get much media attention and who just build these little fiefdoms of very effective and very difficult to penetrate writings who come from right-wing social movement organizing, so far-right religious groups or interest groups or whatever. The far-right leader machine is very, very effective, and left-wing people have a lot to learn from how they do it. To look at how the far right uses these tactics to create leadership, we don't have to look too far than religious organizations. And feminism is actually an interesting example of the kind of issues that some of these groups take on. Understanding that abortion in Canada is highly popular and that there really isn't any mainstream appetite for abortion to be restricted in Canada, far-right organizations and religious groups have specifically targeted feminism as one of the ways in which to confuse people to try and argue that actually abortion is anti-feminist. There's a whole bunch of different ways that they do this. And certainly, I'm sure you've seen images of schoolchildren who are bused to anti-abortion rallies. But they also support young people to be able to become movement leaders. And they do this by identifying ones who are articulate, by awarding young people speaking contests uh, on different topics like why they're happy they weren't aborted. And then they have a whole network of places where these people can talk in front of an audience. It's it's actually kind of clever, like if you think about it, go from church basement to church basement to small restaurant to church basement, and all of a sudden you've got young people who have a, a speaking tour built into their learning. There's not really a version of this on the left, um, partly, of course, because there's not really any left-wing organizations that are as powerful as right-wing churches are. But it is a good reminder of the fact that to become a leader, you do need the opportunity to practice being a leader. And sure, you can just say, I'm a leader and I'm going to learn how to organize this. I'm going to learn on the fly. That's one way to become a leader. But it is so much easier if someone's like, okay, this week you're going to speak at this church and next week you're going to speak at that church and the week after that you're going to speak at this church and then all of a sudden you have it built in. All you need is a car to drive from location to location. I talk about this in Take Back the Fight and I write, the far right has a sophisticated network to produce leadership. They have their own speaking tours to teach their activists how to be effective orators. Public speaking takes practice, and there's no shortage of church events, local dinners, and fundraisers for these activists to learn to hone their craft. The movements seek out rising stars and promote them. They intervene in the media. They appear before government committees. They work locally to influence candidates, support the candidates who commit to their issues, and train people to become leaders in other parts of society. The left can learn a lot from how the far right organizes itself, especially when it comes to how they train leaders and support them into being compelling spokespersons. Ad hoc feminism has made it easier for women like Morozik and Mills. I talk in the book about Andrea Morozik and Leah Mills, who are both self-declared feminists who fight against abortion. So for women like Morozik and Mills to say that they too are feminists, when feminism is about self-identity, who is any feminist to say that these anti-feminist activists aren't in fact feminists? 
Restricting abortion or making it illegal is a key social policy that ensures that women remain poor, desperate, and intimately dependent on a partner. The fact that these far-right activists see a space where they can disassociate this reality from feminism means that the movement who defined and redefined that word have far less power today than they had when those words were first being defined. It's really fascinating, too, then, when you look at the top of how these parties operate and someone like a Derek Sloan or a Leslin Lewis decide that they're going to throw their hat into a leadership race. For sure, the, the central command of this conservative party does not want either of those kinds of people to be the leader of the conservatives. They understand that a social conservative first is going to have a very difficult time to unite the right in Canada because there are a lot of conservatives who are quite progressive on certain social issues. But they don't act the way that, let's say, the NDP acts when someone runs who, quote unquote, shouldn't be running for this party. The conservatives understand that this is a continuum and giving anybody the opportunity to try and run for something is going to develop their understanding of bureaucracy and understanding of how things work. And it will also attract a certain kind of person who's not necessarily represented in the party as it is. For the conservatives, this is a problem when you've got someone like Derek Sloan, who's then also goes into a full on pro-COVID conspiracy theory bend and has to be kicked out of the party. But Leslin Lewis, who comes from the, the social conservative background, is far more able to be present in leadership circles within the conservatives while not likely having any shot at being the leader. It isn't clear that she's being actively kept out, though, because had she been actively kept out, that would become a story in and of itself. But compare that to how the NDP operates its leadership races. Oftentimes when there's quote unquote fringe candidates that will run or there's someone that quote unquote has no business running or whatever, they are instantly marginalized from the leadership. That's because the leadership doesn't see any value in having someone to the left of the person that they want to get elected. They could, they could play the same game that the conservatives play. And it's funny that they don't. But these are spaces that it takes a lot of skill to, to negotiate and get around and operate and convince people that this is the way forward for a party. And if the NDP were able to more em openly embrace younger leadership running for positions like this, and it's not just the NDP, actually in labor, we see this all the time. Running against an established labor leader is like high treason sometimes. So rather than embracing this as an opportunity to have a young activist who's obviously keen and maybe has some ambitions um, to actually be a leader, this is just seen as an attack on the status quo and it needs to be shut out. The left needs to be creating leadership opportunities to train people so that they have that chance to learn and to grow to be a leader. Because if they don't have it, there's nowhere else that they're going to be able to get it. And then what do we have is actually a complete lack of leadership on the left, where there's very few individuals who could even consider running for high profile positions, let alone being good for those high profile positions. And it also then means that there's a massive disconnect between the people who do find themselves in leadership positions and the grassroots. The final thing I want to talk about in relation to leadership is leadership in this era of violent hatred of women online. Leadership often means that you find yourself receiving attacks. You're on the receiving line of very vicious, 
trolling or attacks or threats. Your life can be threatened and whatever. And the reason why the far right does this is because they know that they can scare people out of doing the work that they're doing. And certainly there are no shortage of individuals who became a leader in some way, whether they were self-appointed or appointed by journalists or they were a leader of a collective or something, but who found themselves in that position, received incredible hatred and just burnt out and disappeared, left. It was like, this is not worth my mental health. This is not worth my safety. I am out of here. The problem is that the tactics that happen online that scare people and threaten people, they work. And we know that law enforcement is never going to do anything positive to stop that. We also probably know that government can't either. If government isn't able to even tax Google and Facebook, it's unlikely that they'll be able to figure out how to stop online hate. And so we have to think about leadership in the context of this very vicious far-right online ecosystem and how we protect our leaders from it. And this is where strong social movement organizations or groups or collectives or whatever are so important because no leader should be on their own. There should be no circumstances where an individual finds himself completely isolated and alone. They should have the support of the organization or the group or the collective or the friends or whatever, the, whoever deemed that they would be the leader is the same group of people that needs to have their back when they're getting attacked. And so what does that look like? That might look like you are being attacked and there is an executive that says we have a subcommittee right away and this subcommittee is going to start mobilizing everyone we know to protect this person online, to fight back against the trolls, to take over this individual's Twitter account, for example, so they don't have to see the hatred. This person's going to track all of the threats so that person doesn't have to do it themselves. Uh, this person's going to put out a statement for the organization. That person's going to talk to their employer. And you actually have a rapid emergency response to some sort of massive hate fest from the right that is intended to isolate and force someone into self-harm. The reality, though, is that a lot of who is considered a leader these days online, you know, and I'm not saying that's their fault because oftentimes they get de facto named a leader for some reason, but a lot of people find themselves completely alone and the tactics of the far right keep, keep happening because they work, because they have scared enough people out of speaking out and, and condemning and being loud and taking up place and telling people to go to hell. They know that their employer will probably buckle and maybe even fire them. We've seen that enough times to know that it is worth trying for the far right to see if they can get it to happen again. And so when we have people in leadership positions, that necessarily means there's a structure there to support them. And that structure needs to then envelop them when there is a situation online that threatens them. And we don't talk about how that is an aspect of leadership, that when someone sticks their neck out, there, there is a bunch of people behind them to get their back because, you know, not everyone wants to be the leader. I'll tell a quick story. In 2006, I was the vice president at the student union at X University. And we had a situation where some students were organizing a white culture club. We were condemning that, but the condemnation would have to come from our president because that was our spokesperson. And so normally the president would be the one who's making these statements. 
He didn't feel comfortable condemning it, though. He didn't feel like he had the safety, the relationship with his family, the relationship with his professors, the the, the stomach, frankly, to be high profile going toe-to-toe against white nationalists. It wasn't safe for him to do it. And so we on the executive sat down and we figured out who is the best person to do this then. The best person turned out to be me because I did have the safety. I was able to talk in the language of the racists because I heard it and recognized it from my hometown. And I was then designated to be the person to have to explain what, like, why there's no such thing as white culture to national talk radio stations. You know, at the time I was like 20, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm also learning as I'm going along. But it was the right decision. It was absolutely the right decision. And when my life was threatened, we had, an, an, a, we had a group of people that we were able to mobilize to help make sure that the heat wasn't just on me. We had other people who could step in. We had other spokespeople. We had uh, internal protocols that allowed me to take different time off work and to change my schedule in certain ways because some of the threats were, you know, very specific to my schedule. And then, of course, I had, you know, no employer because I was on the executive. I was the employer. And so we were able to, to navigate this in a way that wasn't going to cause me financial harm. And we did everything we could to limit the potential physical harm that I might have faced. And, of course, you know, as these things are, they're all threats. They're trying to scare me out of doing things. And so that didn't work. And, um, you know, it eventually just died down. But that was really, really important decision because had it been someone else – they would have been in a very difficult situation personally. It would have been much harder for them to have resisted the hate and resisted the, uh, the, the threats of violence. And regardless of whether or not it was him or me, we had the structures around us to protect us, to be able to allow us that, 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 that safety, the relative safety, to call out these organizations. When you do this stuff now on the internet and you're by yourself and you don't actually have that group of people around you, that's really hard. And that's where people feel really exposed. And then all of a sudden, let's say you have a lawsuit that comes your way or you have someone that manages to, to, to scare your boss, that becomes very frightening. And so when we think about leadership, we have to think that the far right online is not going to get better. In fact, it's pretty obvious that it's only going to get worse. And as it gets worse, we need to be organizing, anticipating that it's going to get worse and creating ways that we can protect people who are in those positions where they have to stick their neck out and say certain things and making sure that they're protected from whatever kind of heat or hatred or harassment people try to throw their way. The reality is, because this is a tactic that works, the only hope for the left is to find other tactics to minimize the effectiveness of their tactics. And if we can stop work repercussions, personal repercussions, and allow people to weather these storms without it harming them personally, then we've taken away a very powerful tool of the far right. That's an element of what social movement leadership needs to be oriented towards. And that's why intentional and practiced leadership is so important. Leadership also changes us. You know, it, it gives us different perspectives and it puts us into different locations. And so whenever we're creating that opportunity for people to become leaders in their own worlds, in their own workplaces, in their own communities or whatever, it's a benefit that it multiplies it's one of the most important ways that social movement organizing can influence the broader society. 
is by pumping out these creative and competent leaders who can then take on the injustices in their workplace or in their community, or if, God forbid, they decide to get into formal politics, good for them uh, with informal politics to actually use the levers that exist for leadership, exploit those levers, exploit those possibilities, and demand changes through the positions that people might be able to hold. That's all for this episode. If you like what you hear, make sure you share it on every social media feed that you have and tell all of your friends. Take Back the Fight, the podcast is hosted, written, edited, and produced by me, Nora Loretto. The music is by me as well, except this, which is Garam Chai by General Khan. This podcast was funded by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Be sure to check out all of Harbinger's progressive podcasts at www.harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm earnest, I bring the heat to a tea, guaranteed, garam chai in my thermos.